Chapter 18 of Autobiography of an Actress by Anna Cora Mollett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. During this autumn, Mr. Mawat again fell seriously ill. One eye became totally blind. Its vision was never more restored. He was threatened at times with an entire loss of sight. Medical aid proved unavailing. A voyage to the West Indies was recommended as the sole remaining panacea. Always hopeful, he seized upon the idea so full of promise and persuaded himself that a speedy and thorough cure would be effected through a change of climate. My desire to accompany him was overruled, nor was the execution of this wish feasible. The prostrating species of mal de mer to which I was subject during the entire period of every sea voyage would have rendered me a burden and not a helpful companion but even more imperative reasons compelled me to remain in london it was only through the fulfilment of my engagements that the necessary outlay added to other heavy responsibilities could be met i was enjoying vigorous health i was surrounded by warm and tried friends i was not left alone but he enough that he thought he had chosen the lesser evil it was not in his nature to murmur at the inevitable. He set sail for Trinidad in October, proposing to return in December, before the opening of the new Olympic. But Christmas came, and with it only a letter in the invalid's wished-for place. The sunny climate had benefited him, yet he was too feeble to undertake the homeward voyage. Every steamer brought cheerful and encouraging letters, but the day of his return was postponed from week to week. He had been apprised in Trinidad that to leave the tropical latitude for the cold and uncertain climate of England during the winter season was to rush into certain danger. I was forced to lay aside my expectations as quietly as I best might, to give up looking for him until spring. The new Olympic theatre was to open on 26th of December, in English theatres, there are no performances during Christmas week, nor, as with us, upon Christmas Eve or Christmas night. No theatre in London could boast of a more powerful and extensive company than the Olympic. All the talent within reach had been monopolized by the manager, at a rate of remuneration which the most prosperous theatre could ill support. Among this host of constellations were found the names of Davenport, Brooke, Conway, Wigan, Belton, Compton, all actors who, since that day, have shone separately as stars, besides a cluster of lesser luminaries. The feminine portion of the company consisted of Miss Fanny Binning, Mrs. Seymour, and Mrs. Marshall, Miss Marston, Mrs. Parker, Mrs. Wigan, Mrs. Horn, Miss Oliver, Miss Ellis, etc. Ladies of unquestionable talent in their several departments, a gifted and harmonious band. The stage management was under the direction of Mr. George Ellis, stage manager of Her Majesty's Private Theatre at Windsor Palace, one of the most accomplished directors of which the profession can boast. 
I propose that the star system should be abolished, that no name should appear at the head of the playbills as claiming the highest rank, but that all should stand upon their individual merits, leaving the public to award to everyone his just position. The proposition was acceded to with one voice. The same plan has been adopted in other London theatres. Every actor is, of course, engaged for a separate line of business. The first old man does not trench on the rights of the low comedian, nor the light comedian interfere with the heavy man or villain of the theatre, nor the leading juvenile jostle against the walking man, nor the first old woman come the way of the second old woman, nor the leading lady of the walking lady, nor the heavy lady of the singing chambermaid and the page, etc. The members of the company in a well-organized theater resemble the men on a chessboard. Each has his appointed place and fights his battle for distinction in a fixed direction. I write this much for the uninitiated. The Olympic Theater was to open with Shakespeare's play of the two gentlemen of Verona, to be followed by the usual fantastic Christmas pantomime. I was selected to deliver the inaugural address, written by Albert Smith, Esquire. That was to end my duties for the night. Miss Vinning and Mr. Davenport sustained the principal characters of the play. The recent death of Queen Adelaide rendered it incumbent that all the company should appear upon the stage during the singing of the national anthem, attired in mourning or wearing mourning badges. I refuse to comply with this request. While I respect the convictions of others, mine own objections to the use of mourning, or rather to wear black as mourning, deserve, I hope, some better name than prejudice. At least they are founded upon the religious belief which I profess, and are shared by the leading members of the faith in this country, though not in England. The force of English conventionality was too strong for me to obtain consent from the management to the violation of an established form. While the subject was under discussion, and both parties evinced a determination not to yield, a third person chanced to inquire whether I objected to wear white. I, of course, replied in the negative. Then wear a dress of white crepe, with trimmings of white crepe, and without ornaments. That is considered mourning as much as black, to which you are opposed, was the satisfactory rejoinder. I gladly acceded to this proposition. When the curtain rose upon the assembled company, prepared to sing God Save the Queen, I cannot conceive a more gloomily incongruous sight than was presented. In that gaily decorated theater, blazing with light, sat tier after tier of men, women, and children, all habituated in black. The merry faces and funereal garbs were strikingly inharmonious. On the stage stood the performers, arrayed in the same sable hue. Those who were costumed for the play wore black badges, strangely at variance with their fantastic stage attire. My dress of white crepe offered no disrespect to the memory of Queen Adelaide, and relieved, by contrast, the somber aspect of the group in whose center I stood. At the close of the anthem, 
the inaugural address was delivered i exerted myself to give it a thoroughly humorous interpretation as may be inferred from the name of the author the address was not of a solemn character the black-garbed audience indulged in the most vociferous merriment at mr albert smith's jokes they were infinitely amused at his discovery that there was something extremely ludicrous in the burning of the old olympic upon the site where the present edifice stood the real water flooded the olympic stage the unexpected overflow in the theatre from the engine hose the lessee's hopes ending in smoke and the french ships massed by the english fire destroyed a spectacle which at one period he asserted would have been particularly enjoyed the performance of the play afforded a quiet and rational gratification but the uproarious mirth of course broke out anew at the whimsicalities of matthews during the pantomime the laughter produced by his singing of hot codlins showered with tears the cheeks of age and childhood true they were wiped away with handkerchiefs that had a funereal edge of black but the merry mourners wore trappings and the outward garb of woe with a jovial resignation quite consolatory to witness shortly after this the wardrobe of queen adelaide was sold i purchased several of her richest regal robes the garments of the actual queen have since decked the mimic representative of royalty upon the english as well as american boards my first appearance except for the delivery of the address was in beatrice a few nights after the opening mr davenport enacted benedict shakespeare's twelfth night was the next production the characters in this play are very numerous and the strength of the company was brilliantly exhibited mr brooks first appearance was in othello mr davenport represented iago miss vinning emilia and i desdemona the first new play produced was the noble heart by mr lewis in which mr davenport mr brooke and i sustained the leading characters fashion was the second novelty offered the public i declined appearing miss vinning enacted gertrude and rendered the part more effectively than its author had ever done mr davenport personated the old farmer adam truman the happy blending of deep pathos and hearty humor in his embodiment made the performance a memorable the mise-en-scene of the comedy was truly magnificent the play in spite of the admirable manner in which it was acted did not meet with the same unequivocal species of success which attended the representation of armand before the english audience yet of twenty-seven criticisms by the london press twenty were favourable perhaps because the quality of mercy was strained the lashings of those critics who disdained that quality of mercy atoned for the leniency of the others i have already alluded to the severity of the examiner who pronounced that mrs trollope would for such a production have received at the hands of america a compensation very different from the one bestowed upon their countrywoman but the critic gallantly prefaced his own condemnation by a more complimentary opinion of the daily times 
the savageness of the morning post was thus rebuked by punch mr jenkins last week favoured the limited world in which he moves with a notice of the first representation of mrs mowat's comedy fashion or life in new york a play which according to the times has been acted with success at every chief city in the union and was received at our olympic here with tumultuous applause it may says jenkins by some weak persons be thought ungenerous in us when speaking of the production of a lady and a stranger if we employ any language that is not highly complimentary but genius is of no sex and then jenkins proceeds to abuse the lady and stranger's play elaborately in every particular with all his mighty soul and gigantic strength for the dead set that he thus makes he must of course have a motive which had he limited himself to strictures on the production itself might possibly have been supposed to be a no meaner one than an excess of critical zeal but mr jenkins not content with yelping at the play must needs have a snap at the authoress when the actors writes gently sneering jenkins had indulged us with another glance at their persons a very general call from all parts of the house brought mrs mowat on the stage the noise was then tremendous and a shower of customary bouquets more weighty and continuous than we ever remember it to have been the affair was a little overdone for not only were the flowers provided too profusely but the lady in our eyes appeared to be ready dressed for the occasion why could you have not moderated the rancour of your pen a little jenkins why attack the lady and stranger personally is it your individual self or your order jenkins or flunkydom that mrs mowat has offended jenkins you say that genius is of no sex neither is criticism as personified by you at any rate it is not manly there was some truth in the ready dressed for the occasion i was nervously uncertain of the success of fashion and went to the theatre in a morning wrapper that if the play failed i might not seem to have anticipated a triumph i passed the evening in a private box opening behind the scenes and only made my toilette during the fifth act when the success of the play was ensured as for the floral showers those are always more or less a conventional farce the friends of a performer usually arm themselves with bouquets and the management as frequently prepare a second supply i am not aware that the latter was the case at the production of fashion but it might have been at all events the number of personal friends who were present might well account for the paquier like aspect of the stage during my reception it is a mistake to suppose that the bouquet rain is ever a sign of the estimation in which an actor is held by the public in general though it is often the evidence of private esteem sometimes the same bouquet is made to do service more than once during an evening the critics who condemned fashion seems to hold my country responsible for its shortcomings 
those who awarded the meed of praise in turn bestowed their eulogiums upon america as due to her through one of her children the sun prefaces its lengthy and laudatory criticism with the following america is worthily repaying the dramatic debt she owes us the seeds of the dramatic art which have been scattered by all our best dramatic artists broadcast on american soil have fructified and are now bearing fruit america has within the last three years given us miss cushman the greatest tragedian at present on our stage mrs mawatt the most interesting of young tragedians the most ladylike of genteel comedians the only lady who has shown herself capable of taking miss foote's line of characters since miss foote left the stage mr davenport one of the most energetic and powerful actors of melodrama that has appeared of late years and whose powers as a legitimate tragedian and as a genteel comedian are of no common order besides a host of excellent delineators of yankee peculiarities but america has not given us until last night any play that would stand the test of representation before a london audience rough and ranting melodramas have formed the staple of what america has hitherto sent us but last night this reproach was wiped out and there was represented at the olympic theatre with the most deserved success an original american five-act comedy the scene of which is laid in new york and which delineates american manners after the same fashion as our own garrick coleman and sheridan were accustomed to delineate english manners and which as regards plot construction character or dialogue is worthy to take its place by the side of the best of english comedies it will be observed that the critic ignores the representation of armand which was produced at the merlebonne a year before and also of velasco produced at the same theatre the literary gazette is less oblivious though not so unqualifiedly eulogistic its review of the play has the following opening in the barrenness of home authorship in the spirit of humiliation which attaches to our dependence upon the french for a mongrel dramatic literature the public will greet with satisfaction the quasi-english production of an american author and to this author even a qualified approval tendered in spite of english self-love must be gratifying it became a fair and accomplished lady to venture on the hazardous undertaking which mrs mawatt achieved for the second time on wednesday last in the new arena of her exploits the play is styled a comedy and is entitled fashioned but we would rather consider it what our neighbors call un tableau de moeurs fashion ran two weeks a much shorter period than armand on some evenings the republican sentiments met with ebullitions of displeasure from the audience one night there was a very decided hiss at some of adam truman's animated versions with admirable presence of mind mr davenport paused coolly folded his arms fixed his eyes upon that portion of the theatre from which the hiss proceeded 
and waited for the decision of the audience demanding by his manner whether the majority were prepared to sanction such an interruption his perfect self-possession probably saved the play a torrent of applause silenced the hisses of disapprobation and commanded the performance to proceed fashion was first published february eighteen fifty i can never recall the london and new york representations of this comedy without remembering the sad histories of the english and american personators of prudence the yankee spinsters perhaps the most common character in the play though i never intended it to be so and never understood how it became so i give a brief sketch of those sorely tried servants of the stage in illustration of the mental discipline practised by the actors and of their absolute self-renunciation in laying aside the most heart-rending sorrows during the fulfilment of their duty mrs parker a most estimable woman and excellent actress was the representative of prudence in london while the play was in rehearsal she suddenly received a telegraphic despatch from brighton announcing that her husband was on the point of death he had for several years been a victim to consumption she hastened to him and arrived in time to receive his dying thanks and parting words of tenderness they had been united twenty-five years the bond of mutual love between them seems to have been of the most holy kind proved by love's highest test constancy and unselfishness for years the devoted wife had supported her invalid husband and their children by her exertions on the stage when the last offices were performed she returned to london fashion was to be produced in a couple of days more if the part assigned to her were given to another while she indulged her natural grief she could not demand the salary so necessary for the support of her children her only means of livelihood would be cut off for the length of time that the play ran she begged to be excused from rehearsal as far as possible but informed the management that she would perform her duty on the evening that the comedy was performed who amongst the audience that witnessed her comic delineation of the self-satisfied spinster suspected that an agonized heart was masking its expression in the fictitious smiles that awakened their mirth i shall never forget the look of intense but suppressed grief on her careworn countenance when as i was passing behind the scenes one evening i stopped to speak to her and to thank her for her efforts she was leaning against one of the wings waiting for her cue to appear upon the stage her little daughter of six years old was holding her hand and gazing up into the mother's face with a look of childish but troubled wonder she was too young to feel her loss i expressed to mrs parker my regrets that she should be forced to exert herself while in so unfit a stage trying to conceal her emotion but with lips that quivered uncontrollable she said perhaps it is best for me i should soon be quite useless if i dared to give way and the children she could not finish her sentence but turned her face from me as she drew the little one at her side more closely to her 
A moment afterwards she was on the stage, and I could hear the peals of laughter that followed her entrance. Was not duty the strongest instinct of this high-hearted woman's nature? Was not her victory over herself a triumph that thousands who have sunk into a state of inactive dejection under the pressure of a similar sorrow might bow before and acknowledge as holy? Mrs. Knight was the original personator of Prudence in New York. Her name is endeared to the American public by a host of pleasant associations. Her talents were long the delight of audiences who used to crowd the Park Theater in the good old times. When I became acquainted with her, she was a widow, residing with her brother, for whom she had a sort of twin-like attachment. Her hopes were all centered upon an only daughter, a lovely being of seventeen. When Mrs. Knight was first presented to me, this sweet girl stood by her side, eagerly listening to our conversation. I can vividly recall the delicate bloom of her cheek, the lustrous eyes, the finely rounded form that seemed glowing with health and enjoyment of life's pure pleasures manifold. We never met again until fashion was reproduced after my own debut and I enacted the character of Gertrude. Mrs. Knight personated Prudence as before. Grief had made such ravages in her face that I scarcely recognized her when we encountered each other behind the scenes. Her daughter's summons has come, shortly after I first saw her, in the form of consumption. She lingered a few months, filling her mother's breaking heart with alternate hopes and fears, and then departed. The bereaved mother had been completely crushed by the blow, yet there she stood, fantastically attired for a comedy, though life had become to her the saddest of tragedies. I watched her when she appeared on stage, and could not perceive that her performance had lost any of the humor by which it had been formerly characterized. But, in reality, every look, every word, every action was mere mechanical effort. The body went through a set routine while the spirit was far away. When she left the stage, I twice saw her throw herself into a chair and burst into a flood of tears. At the stage summons, the scalding drops were hastily wiped away, but they seemed to reflow spontaneously the instant she was no longer within sight of the audience. Some years afterwards, I visited her in London. Her sorrow still rankled. Time, the great consoler, had poured no balm into the wound. Profuse weeping had brought a disease of the eyes, and she had left the stage. She was still residing with her brother, to whom she clung as to her only earthly hope. Such a history speaks for itself. It needs no comment. To these narrations, I am tempted to add one more, in exemplification of the same class of virtues. I was not an eyewitness to the facts, but they were related to me by a friend. Mr. McCready was representing Macbeth at Drury Lane, an actress of great public and private excellence personated Lady Macbeth. She was in the act of going upon the stage when a letter was placed in her hands by the messenger of the theater. She glanced at the handwriting and turned deadly pale, but her cue had been spoken by Macbeth. She thrust the letter in her bosom and walked firmly on the stage. When the curtain fell upon the close of the third act, 
my friend saw her with trembling hands hastily tear open the missive. She uttered one exclamation of intense agony, and, with a face rigid as marble, but tearless eyes, refold the epistle. My friend asked her what had happened, but she could not command herself to answer. Stifling down her emotion, she hurried to her dressing room. The curtain rose for the fourth act. At the call boy's summons she reappeared, and with forced composure concluded the part of Lady Macbeth. It was not until the curtain fell, and her professional duty was at an end for the night, that her grief broke forth in tears and words. The letter apprised her of the death of her husband, whom she had watched over with the truest womanly devotion through the most terrible of trials. He was a lunatic. End of chapter 18